Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of me, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield around about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, my Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. So good to be with you this morning. You know, I am convinced that there are Two types of people in this world. Two types. There are a type of people who can sleep on airplanes, and there are the type of people who cannot sleep on airplanes. And unfortunately, I am of the latter group of people. I cannot sleep on airplanes for the life of me. You know, I, I go uh, uh, travel on airplanes and uh, it astonishes me. It astonishes me. You know, I'm I'm there with uh, family or coworkers or whatever, and they're asleep before the plane even leaves the terminal, right? And we're going on a 13-hour flight, and unfortunately, I am fidgeting and moving and trying to pass the hours all the way on this trip. Two types of people in this world. I am not a good sleeper. I'm a light sleeper. If you are in the room and you are quietly walking across the carpet, I can hear you. I can hear you, and it wakes me up. You know, the best sleep for me is the 30 minutes right before my alarm clock goes off. Maybe you uh, can empathize with me. If you come into our bedroom after a night of sleep uh, and examine the crime scene, if you will, You may see this on, uh, on a morning. You'll see pillows thrown everywhere. You'll see sheets ripped on one side of the bed. And you can probably guess whose side of the bed that is. <clears throat> it's mine. And sometimes they're not even on me. They're on the floor, right? Nobody gets them. Uh, we've had mornings where the sheets were ripped. Can you believe that, right? You would come in on the situation and say, what kind of wild animals were fighting here in this bed? Right? Well, when I come to scriptures like Psalm 3, and especially verse 5, where I can see that David was able to lay down and sleep, you know what? It, it gets my attention. It, I mean, I am like drawn right into the scripture. Why? Because I spent decades researching sleep. I've watched every YouTube video, I've Googled it, I've, I've got all sorts of rituals and supplements, so don't bombard my email box with just another one, right? <clears throat> but I look at the scripture and I say, well, maybe this is the answer for me. Maybe this is how 
I can get to sleep. You know, the message this morning is entitled, How to Sleep in a Crisis, and I'm going to pull a fast one on you. Uh, I kind of set you up for this. I want to actually shift it and say, this is, this is probably best, better entitled, How David Slept in a Particular Crisis. And why is that? Because, because I want to say that one Bible verse is too simple to slap on your life, on your problems. One Bible verse is not enough. In fact, I don't even like to take two Bible verses and call you in the morning, right? Life is just way too nuanced and complex. And in God himself, his ways are so mysterious, far beyond what we can imagine. And so, so it's not just simply take two verses and this is going to solve all of your problems. You know, there have been times, yes, when I have stayed up uh, and have had all night worrying, fearing, trying to figure things out. But then there's been nights when I've stayed up all night because I had coffee at 4 p.m. Just as simple as that. There's been nights when I've stayed up grieving and lamenting and crying out to God. So life is super complex. So we can't just take a couple verses and slap it on it and hope that things are going to get better. But as we look at this passage, I hope this morning we're going to learn about David. How did David sleep in this particular crisis that he was in? And he does it in two ways. He does it through his prayer, David's prayer, and he does it through trust. David's prayer and David's trust. But more than just a how-to this morning, so if you came this morning hoping to grab hold of a how-to, I hope you get something more than that. I hope we're going to learn a little bit about David's Lord and his relationship with the Lord. So let's jump in and look at David's prayer. And as David's prayer in this scripture, you're going to see three components of his prayer. Three components. He laments. He expresses confidence. And then you'll see supplication. He's going to ask something of the Lord. David laments. He tells his troubles to God. That word lament means to, to grieve, to mourn, even to complain to God. And you see it in verses 1 and 2. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. In other words, what David is saying, God, I am in trouble. I'm in trouble. My enemies are rising up against me. People are saying that you have abandoned me, that you've left me. Now, this is significant for David because David was the king of Israel. David was the Lord's anointed, and now people are saying that there is no salvation for him in God. And this actually is a common response it's a common response of all of us. When we look on someone who is suffering, when we look on someone who is failing, especially a leader, we might be tempted to think, you know, God's, God's left that person. Maybe they're not even a Christian. We thought they were the Lord's anointed, but maybe they're not. We might have these ideas that just because someone is suffering, God is no longer there. You may have thought that for yourself. And we may look upon situations 
that look super successful and say, wow, that's the blessing of God. Do you know, in God's kingdom, things are upside down. Things are not intuitive. We may look at that situation and say, that's the blessing of God, and actually it may be the curse of God. We may look at, at situations where someone is suffering and say, that person is cursed of God, and no, that person is experiencing the blessing of God. You know, this, this psalm is, is uh, unique uh, in the fact that of the psalms, there's so many of them like this, but this is one of those psalms that has a title. It has a superscription. And these titles, they are reliable, and they help us understand what's going on. This title for this psalm is, it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And you may know this story. If you, if you don't, what's happening here, as I mentioned, David is the king. And believe it or not, his son is trying to take the kingdom away from him. The son is trying to become the king. And King David, what is he doing? He's fleeing the palace. He's fleeing the city with his tail tucked between his legs. He's fleeing in shame. He's fleeing for his life. And so when we look at this situation, this is a, this is a crisis for David and his family. It's also a national crisis, right? Because, because Israel is, is under siege. There's, there's a coup. There's a military coup that is going on. A family crisis, a national crisis. I would suggest to you that there is a spiritual and cosmic crisis going on. David can't see it, but this is what is going on. And it goes all the way back to, to the Garden of Eden when man fell. God said that the seed of the woman would have enmity with the seed of the serpent. The children of God and the children of the devil would struggle throughout all humanity. This is the history of, of human history. This is the narrative of, in which David finds himself. He's in a cosmic battle. Why is that? Because if Absalom can destroy David, can take the kingdom... Where would be the Savior? Because the Savior has promised to come through the line of David. And so we look at David's prayer and we see this very first component of his prayer. He cries out to God and he tells God his troubles. And then the second component is this, that he expresses confidence in the Lord. In verses three and four, but you, O Lord, you're a shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. David is saying, God, you are my shield. This is a military item, right? Because this is a military situation. There's a coup going on and he's saying that God is gonna protect him from Absalom, his enemy. And more than that, God is David's glory. This is the glory of a king who is leaving the palace in shame. But his glory is not rooted in himself. It's not, it's not rooted in his position as, as king. It's rooted in God himself. And God would restore the glory of the king. He would lift his head. You know, what do you do when you are ashamed? What do you do when you are discouraged? 
Your gaze falls down. Your head drops low. David is saying with confidence that God would lift his head back up in honor. There's even a sense that he's going to lift his head back up in victory far above his enemies. And his confidence brims over in this way. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me. He knows with confidence that he can cry out to God and God is going to hear his prayer. And more than that, God is going to answer him. And what I want you to see here in this component of the prayer is that David is not just spouting Bible verses that he's learned about God, theoretical verses about God's protection. No, this is something that is deep within. This is something that he's learned by experience in his relationship with the Lord. He has walked with the Lord, he has tasted of the Lord, and he knows the Lord is good, the Lord is his protector, the Lord is his glory, the Lord is the one who will lift his head. You know, when I, when I interview people for a job, I'm trying to get a sense for who they are, their character. And I remember one situation, I was hiring a guy to lead a group of software engineers and I was looking for someone of character, someone who would put the team first, someone who would lay down uh, themselves on the line for the team, someone who wouldn't take credit for what the team is doing, someone who, when, when things went bad and when there was a crisis, wouldn't throw the team under the bus. And I, I thought I found this guy, looked great on paper. I had all these great interview questions lined up to discern character, and I started getting this picture. This person is a phenomenal candidate. And then I hired him. He was, he was leading a team, and the project went haywire. The project was in a total, total crisis. And you know what I learned by experience? I learned that this guy's character came through it came through. Instead of throwing the team under the bus and say, you know, the reason we're behind schedule is because of this guy. He's behind schedule. No, he took ownership for it. He didn't throw the team under the bus. This is what you're seeing with David. David doesn't know just on paper that God is good, that God will protect him. He knows by experience. The Lord and David, their relationship is tried and it's tested. That's why you see such competence brimming over in his prayer to the Lord. So David tells his troubles to the Lord through lament. He expresses confidence to the Lord, and then he asks the Lord. And take a look at this. Verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now this is, this is a bold, bold request on David's behalf. Have you ever hesitated to ask for help? I know I've done this so many times in my life, uh, mostly because of pride. I want to do it myself. I want to do it myself. And especially in the work relationship when you've got a boss and, and you don't want to go to someone who is, uh, who is above you, someone you esteem greater than you, and ask for their, their help. I can think of, of, of situations at work where, 
where I finally got to the bottom uh, of the end of my rope and I had to ask for help. And you know how I went to my boss and asked for help? I went humbly. I went with respect. I said, you know what? My project is behind. Things are not going so well. You think you could open up the budget just a little bit more so I can hire another resource to bring this back up to par? You know, I didn't go to that boss and say, arise, get up, get out of your chair, open up the budget, give me some more resources. But I want you to see that that's the way David is, is responding to the Lord. He's saying, Lord, get up and help me. It's like a private in the army going to a five-star general and saying, get out of your chair, help me. That's what David is doing. It ought to blow us away. It ought to stun us that David has this type of relationship with the Lord. Now, what are we supposed to make of all this? David's prayer, his lament, his confidence, his bold request. Should we copy David's method? Should we be like David? Well, I think we ought, to, we ought to put that on hold for a second. Maybe, maybe. I think we need to understand more behind why David can ask in this way. Why can David be this way with the Lord? In order to do that, we've got to understand a little bit about David's story. When we understand David's story, maybe then we're going to have a better way to make a conclusion so if you're a student of the Bible, you know a little bit about David's story. I'm going to give you just a, a brief recap. God had told the prophet Samuel that among Jesse's sons, there would be the next king. Samuel goes to Jesse's household, and, and you know how insignificant is David? Like, like when Jesse brings his sons and presents them before Samuel to choose the next king of Israel... He doesn't, even think of, he doesn't even think of David. David's not even there. That's how insignificant, that's how worthless David was. That's how overlooked David was. And yet God chose David to be king. And even more than that, God made a covenant. God made a promise with David. You can find this in 2 Samuel 7. This is what God says. He says, I'm going to make you king and your kingdom will last forever. Your throne is going to last forever. This is, this is an amazing promise that is being made. David becomes king. And then there's a turn in the story. There's a tragic turn that, that most of you guys are aware of. David blows it big time, and he does the unthinkable. He sins against the Lord. He sins against his people. He sins against his household. He sins against Bathsheba's household. He sins against Uriah the Hittite. He has him killed, and he takes Bathsheba for his wife. He blew it big time, and this is what the Lord says to him. Hear this. This is so crucial. 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 and 11 this is the Lord talking. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. You hear what God is saying to David? He's saying, you 
blew it big time. And because you blew it big time, there's going to be violence in your own house. From, from your own family, you're going to have violence. And I hope you're making the connection now. You see, this crisis that David is in, where these enemies and these skeptics are taunting him, this is a crisis of his own doing. David's own sin has got him into this situation. And you may be thinking, as you reflect on David's prayer, how could David do that? How could he have such gall? How could he have such nerve to complain to God? How could he be so confident at this point now that, that God is going to protect him? How could he be so sure that he's going to cry out to the Lord and that the Lord is somehow going to answer him, that he can boldly ask, arise God, get up and save me? I mean, isn't what he's going through what the Lord said would happen? When I was in high school, my mom and dad are great. Uh, they, when I became of driving age, they bought me a brand new car. And I look back now, by the way, you younger people, I was spoiled. <laughs> they gave me this beautiful gift. <clears throat> and I started driving. And shortly after having this car, I completely wrecked it. I was hit by a dump truck going over 60 miles an hour. And it's amazing. It's God's grace that I'm, I'm here today. Completely totaled wiped out. And you know what happened? Well, our insurance rates went up. I was pretty much uninsurable at that point. We could no longer afford a car for me to drive. I actually didn't have a car from that point until Debbie and I got married. Um, that's, that's the consequences of, of my fault. How could I go back to my parents and ask for another car? How could I complain about the situation that I had gotten myself in? You see, this is what's going on with David. Absalom is rising up to take the kingdom away from him. God said this would happen. Why? Because you are a monster sinner. Look what you did. How could David have the gall to call on the Lord the way he did? It's because David knew the Lord. David had a relationship with the Lord that we need to understand. You know, you can go all through the Psalms and get glimpses of this. Let me take you to Psalm 145.8. This is what David proclaims. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You see, David knew that the Lord was a Lord of abounding, extravagant grace. So much so that he can call out to this gracious Lord and perhaps the Lord would protect him even from his own consequences of his own sin. And because David knew the Lord like this, he was able to leave his problems with the Lord. This is David's trust. You'll see it in verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. 
I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David was able to sleep in this crisis even though life was falling apart. And life was falling apart because of himself. Here we have an image of David laying down right in the middle of the battlefield surrounded by his enemies. He's able to sleep. He's able to trust God because he told his troubles to God and he leaves his troubles with a God that he knows, a God who is gracious, abounding in love towards him, and a God who had made a promise that David's throne would last forever. His kingdom would be established. And you know what? Those cosmic forces of evil, they can't thwart the promise of God. Evil men like Absalom and enemies cannot thwart the promise of God. David's own ugly sin cannot thwart the goodness and grace and promise of God. And so he trusts God and he can lay down and sleep. You can also see his trust in verse 8 where he declares salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. Now, how many times in my life have I not declared that? Have I thought salvation rests in me alone? How I've stayed up at night warring and planning and scheming and figuring out how to get out of a, of a situation, how to minimize pain or, or hurt, how to fix something. And David knows that none of these things are going to deliver him from the crisis that he is in, that only the Lord can rescue him. Because only the Lord can rescue him. David is totally fine with leaving the timing and the means of salvation to God. How many times in my life, maybe how many times in your life, have you tried to force a solution? How you've tried to change the timing of something and not allow God to do his work? And this is, not, this is not a theology of let go and let God, because don't forget, what did David do? He fled. He fled. But the, but the point here is, who are you looking to in a crisis? Who is your Savior? Who is the one that's going to rescue you? This ought to be really good news for you if you are in Christ this morning. What it means is you can tell God, your troubles. You may have blown it big time. Feel like that you ought to pay for your sin and, and the trouble that you've gotten yourself in. This is, this, is, this is inviting you. Tell God your troubles. Fall upon his grace, even if the crisis that you are in is, is something of your own doing. This is an invitation to be real with God, to be real with God. If you look at Psalm 3 and you know the context of the situation, this is what David is doing. He is spilling his guts to God. Be real with the Lord. Tell him your troubles. Verse 
You may be here this morning and hearing this message and there's something unsettling about it to you. If you've been on the receiving end of sin, if you've been on the receiving end of ugly sin, and, and, I, and we, can't, we can't whitewash it this morning. David's sin was ugly. He's a monster. If you've been on the receiving end of this, it, it, it appears scandalous to you. How can God extend grace to someone like David? He wrecked Bathsheba's family. You ought to just leave David where he's at. Let him pay for his sin. You know, uh, Fast forward to our current reality. I mean, if David was here today and he was a leader of the church, we would be like, what kind of leader is this? Surely there is no salvation for him in God. He's not even a Christian. I mean, how? last time I checked, maybe there is one out there, but I don't remember a Christian leader who has fallen like this, who has murdered someone, who has schemed and plotted like this. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that we don't hold these people accountable and that they shouldn't be in certain positions. If David was here today, it would be scandalous. And we would say to ourselves, this is wrong. Justice needs to be satisfied. Well, we can't really understand a God like this until we look upon Jesus when we look at Jesus and we look at the cross of Jesus, this is where justice, this is where grace and mercy all come together. Because on the cross of Jesus, this is where justice is satisfied. Death, torture, nails being pounded in, spit upon, mocked. Yes, that is what David, his sin deserves. That's justice. That's, that, he's a monster of a sinner. For justice to be satisfied, someone has to pay. And at the cross of Jesus, that's where it all comes together. David receives what he doesn't deserve. He receives grace. And all those wrongs he had committed are righted at the cross of Jesus. And this is scandalous. This is shocking. How could God forgive someone? Well, he does it by offering his own son. And this is big news for us this morning because your sin, your past sin, your present sin, even your future sin cannot separate you from God. Your sin is not so big that it, that it outlasts the, the, the extravagant grace of God. You see, David's relationship with God, it's not based upon how well he followed God as an Israelite. It's not based on how well he ruled as king because he blew it. He blew it. It's based on the overflowing, abundant, extravagant grace of the Lord. The coming Davidic king, the coming one, Jesus, who would sit on the throne of David forever. 
And so what this means for you and me this morning is this. If you are in Christ this morning, guess what? Your standing, your relationship with God is not based on how well you are following the Lord, how well you are living the Christian life, how much Bible you are reading, how much you are memorizing. These are all good things. Here's a dangerous thing for a pastor to say. How often you come to church, how much money you give. Your standing with God is not based on any of that. It's not based on how you are living the Christian life, but it's based on how Jesus lived his life. That's where your standing is rooted. This is what Jerry Bridges says. It says, regardless of how much you grow in Christ, you will never arrive at a point when your Christian character or conduct will make you acceptable to God. You will always be dependent on the perfect righteousness of Christ. And this is an invitation for God's people to come to him. Lay down your sin and find your rest in Jesus, his perfect life. If you're here this morning, you've yet to follow Christ by faith. This is an invitation for you. You may be here this morning saying, you don't know my story. The things I have done, how I have blown it. You may be thinking, wait, let me clean myself up. I know to come to church, I've, I've got to clean myself up. I've got to get a Bible. I've got to do all these things. And, it, and there's nothing further from the truth. What qualifies you to come to God is your neediness, your need of a Savior. Your sin qualifies you to be saved. And so I invite you this morning, believer and unbeliever, come to Jesus Find rest. Find rest in him. He is your glory. He is your shield and protector. He is the one who will lift your head. Would you pray with me? Gracious and heavenly Father, your grace towards us is unfathomable is unthinkable, is scandalous. We cannot understand how you can forgive monster sinners like David, monster sinners like us. Father, help us to come to you with our troubles. Help us to come to you with our crises. Help us to come to you with our sin and neediness and fall upon the grace of God that you show us in your dear son, Jesus. And we ask this in his precious name, amen.